Hello, everyone. Welcome to Heal Thyself, episode number 13. Lucky number 13. We've been at this. We've been going hard. We've been dropping bombs. I really hope you're appreciating it, and I hope it's helping. Before I get into this knowledge bomb segment, let me bring up the verdict that came through with Monsanto, which was really interesting. And a few weeks ago, I had put together a series of stories that was showing uh, the exposure of what happened in the Monsanto declassified documents. They, they came right to the surface showing how they manipulated studies, how they knew that uh, their Roundup causes different cancers, and now we're starting to see a trend. The first verdict being about 75 million, the second one being 80 million or so, and then this one for this couple being $2 billion. Now, will they get it all? Probably not, but $2 billion, that's a headliner. I believe that the consciousness is starting to awaken to how poisonous this is and how ubiquitous it is in our food supply, as well as uh, landscaping, agriculture, everything. This is such a major subject. I've been saying this 10 years ago. I was a hippie going to GMO marches, and now it's coming to the surface. I'm really happy that this is happening, but unfortunately at the cost of many people's health. Let's go to the knowledge bomb segment with that in mind. All right, today's knowledge bomb is gonna be on an important subject because we have been hearing about organic for quite a while. Um, it's been around for a while, but is it real? Is it beneficial? Should you put in that extra dollar into buying organic kale versus conventional kale, for example? Organic is the fastest, fastest growing sector in food right now, fastest. Back in 1997, when it was starting to make, you know, get, get some teeth and grounding on, it was about a $3.6 billion industry. Well, now, now, 10 years later, back in 2017, $49 billion industry, it is booming. And from the year before in 2016, it jumped up $3.5 billion in sales. So there's a demand, supply and demand. People want organic, but why? You hear it, it's trendy. You hear it on podcasts, you see it on commercials, you hear people talking about, oh, well, it needs to be organic, but why? And is it worth it? Let's go into it. So uh, what we saw is that in 2017 and 2018, there was an increase and more people were buying it. And particularly what we saw is millennials. Millennials are the ones who are really into the organic. Why? Because they value their health more than wealth, even though I believe you can value both. Uh, they value their health more than wealth. So we're starting to see that. And the Hispanic population, which is really cool, they're starting to catch on to the importance of organic food. 75% um, of all food categories now in the supermarket offer an organic option. And I can attest to that. I mean, now they make organic Gatorade. I mean, this company was consistently putting out a crappy product since my childhood. And now they'll put out something organic. And I always say this about companies. They will go where the money is, right? So if Coca-Cola and Pepsi are poisoning us for so many years, and then there's a demand for organic, well, you better believe you're going to see organic Coca-Cola and Pepsi. And that's what we're starting to see. These big, big corporations that didn't really give a crap about our health are now starting to get into the organic market. I get it. Go where the money is. But we're causing the demand, and we are voting with our dollar. 82% um, of households are now buying organic. Maybe it's one thing, maybe it's 20 things. That's okay. At least we're, the consciousness is starting to grow. And state-wise, Washington, Oregon, and Cali are the highest. 92% of households in Washington have organic, 91% in Oregon, and 90 in California. The seal is trusted by 75% of families. I'm going to go a little bit into what that means. But um, yep, it's, it's pretty much on fire right now. Now, 
there's a study that came out in 2012 by Stanford University. And this is a study that non-organic proponents are really holding their hat on, right? Because it's from Stanford University. And it, the 2012 study showed, or they concluded that, uh, basically, that there's no evidence that organic foods are significantly more nutritious than conventional. But they say it, they, there, may, there may be less pesticides or pesticide exposure, obviously. But this was a poor study, and it was done by Dr. Bravada and Dr. Spangler in, uh, from uh, Stanford University. And what, why it was a poor study? Well, what happened is this. It's a, it was a meta-analysis. They, they, they just started gathering all of the studies on organic and conventional organic, and they had 237 studies they gathered. I think they, it ended up with about 17 or so. But they looked at the criteria for nutrition content, viral, fungal, bacterial contamination, and pesticides. The problem is, is that, well, amongst many problems, is that they had such a narrow definition of what even nutritious meant. So a lot of time in these studies, these authors, to have positive results, will create their own definitions. They'll take a subjective concept and, and, and create their own definition to have their results fit the, the end result of what they see, uh, or that their results fit what their definition is. So, um, and then they put it out into the news and then the news gets right on it. What I'm trying to say is this is a poor study, poor definition, poor design, and I'm going to tell you why, but the pesticides fell within federal guidelines of conventional. They also went on to say that, uh, you have a Dr. Landrigan out of Mount Sinai said, well, the thing about federal guidelines, particularly for pesticides is that they're imperfect. They don't protect the infant in the womb or the young child, right? So they're using these measurements and quantities of pesticides based on a full-grown adult. This is why, in particular, pregnant women and children are even more susceptible to pesticides. So already, that's, that's, that should be a reason alone why to be buying organic uh, reduction of pesticides. And, and also the study ignored quantity of pesticides. How about multiple exposures? How about synergistic effects? Because this is the big issue when you talk about pesticides. I remember I put up this post and this guy's like, well, it's the dose that counts. And he was like, hey, you know, you, you're just, you're talking about this chemical and you don't even, yeah, it's a dose that counts, but that's one chemical. Do we live in a vacuum? No, we live on, we live in this planet where we're walking around and we're exposed to uh, personal care products, food, air, water, everything, that has a cumulative effect. And you don't think that one chemical will work with another chemical? I mean, we see that in nature with, with different nutrients. Chemicals work together. It's called a synergistic effect. So this was a poorly defined study. As I mentioned, the nutritionist part, it, had, it was extremely narrow definition with predictable outcomes. So New York Times got a hold of this, and they went in on this. Basically, one of the quotes on their article was from an expert. They said, the researchers started with a narrow set of assumptions, as I mentioned, and arrived at an entirely predictable conclusions, as I mentioned. Stanford should be ashamed of their lack of expertise about food and farming among the researchers, a low level of academic rigor in the study, its biased conclusions, and the lack of transparency about the industry ties of the major researchers on the study. What the heck does that mean, industry ties? Well, Stanford University did receive, before the study, um, a grant from Cargill, which is a huge multinational organization that is pro-GMO. Um, that's, it's just to be noted. Did it affect the research? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, 
I have trust issues. So someone could tell me something and I'll be like, oh, well, I'll, I'll have to research myself. So we don't know, but it's worth saying. And then uh, there was a scientist that said the Sanford team is a bunch of doctors and clinicians, and they took on a project completely outside of their training and experience. This is from uh, one of the scientists at the Oregon Center. And it's true because when you do research on the authors, like uh, Dr. Smith Spengler or Dr. Bravada, you see that they have no extensive nutrition training. Why? Because Dr. Gonzalez did the research. I looked in there. No extensive nutritional training. How are two clinicians who have no nutritional training speaking about nutritional content of organic? I, I, I just want to say that, right? Because you can have training, you can have understanding of concepts, but if someone's reporting research, especially on a major study, I want an expert telling me. So actually, a few years before this study came out um, they, from Newcastle University, there was a very, very similar study, um, pretty much the same study, but it had opposite results. Why? Because it was better designed. Uh, they found critical errors in defining of nutrients in the, in the Stanford study because the author actually critiqued the study. She found critical errors in the define, in definition of nutrients, uh, purposeful exclusion of nutrients found to be higher in organic foods, from the papers that they reviewed. That's really concerning. Uh, so anyway, look, you may speak to one of your doctors, a nutritionist, uh, a registered dietitian, and they'll say, no, you know, there's really not much of a difference between organic and conventional, but there is. Um, so we, we, we know organic berries, for example, have 52% more polyphenols. That's a cancer fighter and vitamin C. And then there was a study out of the UK big one. And the conclusion was that organic food produced 40% higher levels of nutrients. And then the largest study to date, the big, the big one, the big daddy, basically showed that, um, that new organic food was far more nutritious, about 40% higher in uh, nutrients and, and antioxidants. Beautiful stuff. So what the heck does organic mean? Organic means that you're going to get organic ingredients, organic treatment in 95 to 99% of, of, ingredients by weight. So what that means, it's not grown or handled or processed with pesticides, synthetic chemicals, GMOs, radiation, fertilizer, toxic hexane, right? That's an extraction, toxic hexane. That's really toxic. Petroleum. It's not fertilized in sewer sludge. That really does happen. I don't even know how that's okay. Uh, antibiotics, or growth hormones. So how any of this is even allowed is, is a bigger question. Just think about what I just said, um, that it's excluded from organic and how it's even included in conventional is beyond my understanding of, of, of the human condition. But anyway, I digress. How about 10 to 20,000 agricultural workers are diagnosed with pesticide poisoning every year? Pesticides are real. Organic is the way to avoid best as possible, okay? So at any given time, produce can have 47 to 67 different pesticides. You can wash it. Some may come off. Majority are not going to come off. So washing it is not going to really do much. Immune suppression, hormonal disruption, allergies, and cancers are all connected to these pesticides. So contrary studies on the nutrient front, even taking into account the I don't even think it's much of a controversy. Organic food is more nutritious. But let's just take into account, at the very least, we should be buying organic food just to stay away from the pesticides because the pesticides are the nasty ones. That's, and we found that that's a major reason why people just buy organic anyway, because of the known issues with uh, pesticides. So again, clean 15, dirty dozen. If you don't, don't want to spend extra, look for the ones that you can buy or should be buying organic, like 
the Clean 15 and Dirty Dozen. Check out the 2019 list. Much better. Is it a perfect label? No, not at all. So as I mentioned, the label means 95% organic. That means 5% are still exposed to different toxins. They allow over 200 non-organic substances to be added into that 5%. So we are still exposed to chemicals. Some of the uh, biological or botanical pesticides they use can also have disruption. So like I said, it's not perfect. You know what is perfect? Having a backyard, growing your own food, or knowing your farmer and having a close relationship with him or her and getting some good, good quality produce with good quality soil, rotating crops, nutritious food. That's the best way to do it. Can we all do that? No. I live in Venice. I don't even have a patch of grass. I have a beach, um, but you can't really grow cauliflower on a beach. So just remember this before I close on this, is when you get organic, the best is going to say if it's 100% organic. 100% organic, that 5% you're not necessarily worrying about, but most, uh, the label itself is going to be 95% organic, and that's okay, much better than what you're going to get with conventional, more nutritious, as opposed to the Stanford study said, and definitely, definitely less chemicals, less pesticides, less all of those nasties. We know what GMOs do, as per what I just said in the beginning of the show, um, so let's empower ourselves. Go with organic um, vote with your dollar and, and, you know, keep your kids, pregnant women, your families, your friends, whatever it is, let's, let's stay healthy as best as possible and start, start growing your own farms. And, and when you have a, a good batch of kale or cauliflower, send it to Venice because those are my favorite. All right, we're going to go to product review. Hey everyone, today's product review is going to be on laundry detergent. I mean, come on, we're always washing our clothes and we're, we're dousing them in chemical detergent. Most of us are. I know I was when I was in college. I know I was growing up. So um, it took me quite a while to get into understanding that there's different pieces in our life where we're being exposed to different things, right? And I mentioned before, it's cumulative. You have a cup that's filling up and filling up and filling up until it manifests as an issue, disease, skin issue, uh, dietary issue, autoimmune issue, but we always have to keep in mind what our exposures are because there's there's known toxicities that happen with these exposures. So it's really important. It's an important subject for all of us to really start um, empowering ourselves and going to the market and buying better quality. I feel like Tide has a monopoly on crappy laundry detergent. Um, and of course, who hasn't used Tide? I mean, I feel like I use it more of my life than I didn't. But Tide gets an F. It gets an F because issues with the ingredients. I didn't even, I didn't even bring it here, but I'm going to talk about it. Tide um, has implications in asthma and reproductive issues. So already, if you or your child or anyone in your home has asthma, this should be a number one thing to think about. Here's why. I'll see patients... Uh, especially back in school, a lot of it, where people would come and they'd have a tremendous amount of allergies and skin issues or presenting with a dermatitis in a part of their body. I say, what laundry detergent are you using? A lot of them were getting better when they were just stopping it. All right, so just remember, because it's a chemical soup that your clothes are just bouncing around and twirling and swirling around in. So yeah, it's implicated in skin, allergies, reproductive issues. That was really high actually for Tide. The highest, the highest concern, reproductive issues. If you're trying to have a baby, don't use Tide. If you have asthma and uh, respiratory issues, there's a moderate concern for sure. Um, and the big concern is in one, in one ingredient called sodium borate. And this 
in studies has been implicated and connected to endocrine and reproductive toxicity. So as I mentioned, not only even if you're trying to have kids, if you want your hormones in balance or you're having hormonal issues, then start thinking about what's going around and inside your body, okay? And really important to address that. Ethanolamine is another one that is implicated in just general organ toxicity. And this is something as benign as laundry detergent. We don't really think about it, right? But it's real. And remember, it's the cup. And laundry detergent definitely has a big percentage of that cup filling up. It also has fragrance. How many shows am I gonna talk about fragrance? The umbrella term for thousands of different chemicals. So it's just fragrance, right? And uh, we don't even really know what's in there. So, and that's connected to really to skin issues and allergies. So let's go to the two that are pretty popular. Um, this seventh generation laundry detergent over here um, can be found uh, in many places. This was found in Whole Foods, but I'm pretty sure you can find that pretty much anywhere. And seventh generation has become pretty good at making okay products and really good at um, greenwashing. But uh, let's let's just talk about this one, really. If you look in the back, th there's a lot of plant-derived cleaning agents. And I will say, before I even criticize this, it's better than Tide, exponentially better. So if this works well for you, then okay. But just know there's better ones out there. But it's exponentially better than Tide. In the back, it has all these plant-derived um, enzymes and water uh, cleansing agents, water softeners. So it, it does look good on the surface. The issue is it has two ingredients in particular. And I'm going to get these right on the first try. So uh, methyl lithothiazolinone is the first one. And benzoisothiazolinone is the second one. These are, it says it in the back, they're synthetic ingredients. And this is why this gets a C grade, because these ingredients in itself are connected particularly to asthma and respiratory issues. Again, if your child has asthma or respiratory issues, or your husband, or you, or your wife, whatever it is, start thinking about what is being, uh, what the family's being exposed to, okay? You might have heard of SLS, sodium lauryl sulfate, or um, laureth sulfate. These are um, surfactants. They basically make these guys bubble and why um, when you're washing clothes, they're all sudsy. Um, that's because of the surfactants. They could, they could cause allergies in certain people. It's more of a moderate concern, but, but it's in a lot of stuff. Start checking your things and see, you'll start seeing it in there. The much better one and readily available is BioClean. Okay, so BioClean Citrus, this is the Citrus Essentials Laundry Liquid. Okay, it does use those surfactants that I mentioned, but this gets an A grade. Those surfactants are more moderate, but overall, the ingredients in this are a lot more benign, right? So it, it, it doesn't have many respiratory or uh, allergy-causing ingredients. Um, it does use some oils, and maybe some people are sensitive to oils, but most of this is using different oils for the smell and the cleansing properties. Mm -hmm. This is a good company. They're really committed to people, cleansing, uh, keeping the family safe. As, as I'm sure seventh generation wants to do that. Actually, I haven't even researched who, seven, who owns seventh generation. It might be a corporation now that I think about it. And that doesn't go to say the best interest is in mind, but track record-wise... 
I could say differently. Just track records. I'm not a crazy conspiracy theorist, but I always am on alarm. So BioClean's a really good one. Um, I didn't get to, uh, I, I've been talking to a company called Branch Basics. I may um, have them send me some stuff, read over there everything, make sure that it looks clean, but that's always an option. I'll actually be, if you stick to my stories, watch, and I'll talk about it if, if it passes the Dr. G test. Um, I'll be talking about their products too. They're, those seem really nice. I've been hearing a lot of good things from people in, in this field. Um, there's other people who use the Thieves laundry detergent that is strictly um, essential oil based. That looked pretty good on the surface when I looked into it. Um, people really love it. Um, so yeah, there's there's good quality detergents out there that you can get. Now, as I say pretty much almost on every show, I'm again paid by EWG, Environmental Working Group, but I should because I talk about it every single day. Maybe they could sponsor this one day. I'll talk to the producer. But really, the Environmental Working Group does a good job because anything that I said, you can look at, you can type in BioClean laundry detergent and you'll get the grade and you'll get the ingredients and you'll look over it and you'll go, oh, look, that's good. The same goes if you're at the supermarket or the health food store, whatever you get in your detergent, just, just pull up your phone and type it in and see just, just the letter grade. You don't even have to look at the ingredients. See the letter grade and see if it causes any allergies or organ toxicity or reproductive issues. Um, and if it doesn't, then, then that's your go-ahead. What an empowering tool that is. It's not perfect. N none of these tools are, but um, we're doing our best here too really start spreading health. So yeah, there goes the product review. Tide, um, just really light it on fire, put it in the back and never buy it again. Uh, send a certified letter to Mr. or Mrs. Tide and be like, I'm boycotting your products and make sure they read it. So why don't we just move to our special guest? I mean, I've been excited about this for weeks, actually months, because we booked this a while ago and uh, it's going to be a dope conversation. All right, everyone, for our guest segment, this is going to be amazing and I'll tell you why. I have the one, the only Dr. Stephen Lin and he has been one of my favorite accounts I've been following for quite a while. You all know that I'm into dentistry. You all know that I went to dental school. So this is major. I got a lot of questions from a lot of people. So we are going to not waste any more time. Dr. Stephen Lin, welcome. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, man. It was a, shoot, thanks for coming. You're all the way from Australia. Yeah, yeah. I do some work, a lot of work in the U.S. My publishers here, and you know, I love L.A. and New York, and yeah. So I always love visiting. So okay, all right, all right. So how long have you been practicing? So I graduated from dental school in 2009, uh, which is a decade now. Mm. Um, yeah, so. It's funny, you know, I went through dental school and you kind of picked, you did some dental school, right? So yeah. you know what it's like. Yeah. It's it's very intense. You know, you learn a lot in dental school yeah. and your mind's so full with getting through all of, you know, the ticking the boxes, those kind of things. And, you know, you think you're, you know, dentistry is a very specific kind of you know, profession. So you think your life's going to kind of, you know, you know, be there, you know, in a dental practice and it will, I never pictured studying dentistry would kind of open my perspective to things that, you know, are potentially, you know, outside the realm of teeth, but it's all connected in the end. I've practiced dentistry for 10 years, but it, within that time, I've kind of gone on a big learning process myself. And mainly it happened during the first years of dental school when I was practicing and I was getting all these questions from patients and they weren't 
it wasn't resonating with me, the answers I was giving them. So, you know, parents would ask, you know, why does my child have tooth decay? Or why do I have tooth decay? My friend doesn't, they worse than me. Or why does one kid need braces and, and not the other? And I couldn't answer them. I went to all the textbooks and I was just like, you know, there's no real kind of answer for this. And I kind of went on a, a little bit of a journey thinking whether I could practice dentistry all my life because it felt like I was just patching over things and just kind of like hiding the truth. Yeah. And then I kind of discovered the work of Weston A. Price and that burst open the door. It took a long time. I didn't accept it to start with. I was quite skeptical of it. And, but then I realized there was a lot of scientific underpinning from there. And that was the whole journey into writing the dental diet and, you know, basically practicing what I call functional dentistry, which I think is really important today, which is why, you know, people who are so switched on like yourself, are understanding the mouth is really important. So who is Weston A. Price? What, why, why was he so important and, and changing for you? Yeah. So Weston A. Price was a dentist and in a little bit of background, I went through grad school seven years of um, study. And I'd never heard of Weston A. Price. And I actually came across him on a, a shelf in a shared reading place in a, in a hostel in Turkey yeah. when, I was, when I was traveling. And I picked it up and I was like, oh, what's this? I was actually trying to get away from dentistry at the time just to rethink what I wanted to do in yeah. my life. And the book was called Phys Nutrition and Physical Degeneration written by Weston A. Price in the 1930s. And it's a book about his trip around the world to find out what about the modern diet is causing all, all the teeth problems he was seeing in Cleveland, Ohio. And you've got to remember, this is back in the ninth, early 1900s. So teeth were bad then, but not as bad as what we're seeing today. Is that right? Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and th there's a lot of kind of layers to it because at first I didn't understand it. But like basically what he shows, he went to 14 different cultures all around the world. And he looked at whether the traditional diets were intercepted by modern diets. And so what he looked at is the people that had been eating the diet for thousands of thousands of years, what effect it had on their dental health, their tooth decay rates, their jaw development. So this is wisdom teeth impactions as well. And this is a big one. Mm -hmm. um, and, and overall health as well. He's saying, I don't see any chronic disease in these people. I don't see any tooth decay. I don't see any jaws that have impacted wisdom teeth or crooked teeth, which we call malocclusion at all. Yeah. And then as soon as they ate the traditional diet, it pops up like a balloon. Done. Immediately. Immediately. 30% wow. to modern rates of decay. Crooked teeth. And this is the thing I didn't understand is because I was never taught any any etiology or any reasons why or causes of crooked teeth in dental school. And he was saying, and the way he did it, the way he documented it was by taking photographs. And so he, he took 15,000 photographs, black and white, that some of them are in his book. You can kind of get it in libraries now. We'll see it online. And you see these amazing facial structures. And so what he's saying is that these people developed craniofacially and it was related to the other diseases he was seeing in the mouth. And at first I was like, this can't be right. Like it must be disproven because I was never taught it. And I basically put the book away, went back to, to my dental practice and kept drilling and filling and, and trying to tell people to yeah. stop eating sugar. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but eventually I went back to it and I realized, I was like, hang on, I don't understand this. Like there's things he's talking about here that I don't understand. And then that delved me into the world of anthropology understanding a historical perspective of what both at both dietary and understanding the jaws and teeth provide us the hardest data on human health that we have, you know, because jaws and teeth last the longest in the archaeological record. Mm -hmm. And what we know 
100%. You talk to any anthropologist, we know there was no dental disease before the agricultural revolution. And it really steps up once we hit the industrial revolution. And we're talking about crooked teeth as well. So wisdom teeth impactions, so which nearly every, it's endemic, one of the most common surgeries we have today. That's a problem of the jaws not growing. Same problem as when a kid is 12 and needs braces. That's a problem with their jaw not growing to fit teeth. Fit, mm-hmm. Teeth can only fit into a jaw structure that will, uh, you know, like house. It, yeah. yeah, completely. Like, you know, the, the chairs in a grandstand for a stadium. You know, mm-hmm. if, if the platform's all out, the, chair, the chair's going to be all crooked. Mm-hmm. This is what he was talking about. And he was talking about how traditional diets meant that people never had these problems and then never suffered the sequelae after, which were all the chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what we've done since Price, it, it was basically just, you know, thrown out in the 1940s to 50s. And then we've changed all our dietary regulations to do exactly the opposite of what he was saying. Whoa. And our teeth have just degenerated. And we've, yeah. we've run into the type 2 diabetic epidemic. And the big one we're running into now is the, the, issue, the breathing epidemic. Mm-hmm. So we are a population that don't breathe correctly, sleep apnea. Yeah. And it's like, oh, why is that happening? It's because the jaws have, aren't developing that don't house the airways. And Price preempted all this. And we now have the – there is good scientific – explanation for this it's just it takes a long time for research to reach clinical practice and that's where we're kind of at now and there's this really important space in the dental what i think is called functional dentistry to interface medicine and dentistry so they're not separate anymore and then understand that food everything everything in environment we can prevent braces in kids you know we have an inner immune system to tooth decay all of these things you know it's basically a new model of physiology that has, has been basically played out in the scientific literature, which we've missed. That's incredible. I, I, I Look, I've heard Weston A. Price. I looked back and forth, but I mean, to hear the full picture, it's, it was, it's really nice to understand what's going on. What was he finding then uh, at the turn of the Industrial Revolution? What was integrated more that was causing the shift in dental health? Yeah, so what he did, and his scientific method was quite unconventional, which is why it's thrown out now, because it's not, you know, it's not a randomized RCT, blah, 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 you know, and, but like what he did was he, he synthesized an amazing amount of data. He would go to a population, he would do dental exams on them, he would record all their dental uh, decay rates and so forth. And in, in terms, it wouldn't be modernly kind of accepted, but it still counted the amount of teeth. You can see decay, right? Mm-hmm. But what he did was he looked anthropologically as well. He looked at the jaw records. He looked at the people, the generations before. And, the, and he also looked exactly when people that were eating traditional diets still today, so that the, the how their dental health was in that modern time, and then the people that were eating uh, modern foods, and then so, and the decay rates. And then he took the foods and he compared the foods in certain nutrients back in his lab in Cleveland, Ohio. Mm-hmm. The whole thing about price, and I think this is why it's been misunderstood, is that in his book, if you, when you read it, he says, right, so traditional diets have three factors that mean you don't ever get tooth decay, you don't ever have um, crooked teeth or wisdom teeth impactions, mm-hmm. and there were vitamin A and vitamin D and this other mysterious thing called Activator X. And he, ne- he died before he ever figured out what Activator X was. And so that was 10 years later. And what happened was that basically his work was lost. You know, he, he ran into a big controversy with things uh, he'd previously published on root canals and that kind of got really unpopular in the dental scene. Um, and his work got thrown out and he 
founded the American arm of uh, the American research arm of the Dent uh, Dental Association. Mm -hmm. So he was a big figure and he was just kind of lost. It took until 99 when the Westerner Price Foundation was yeah. reestablished. 10 years, but they went along for 10 years without knowing what Activator X was either. And then so it was in 2007 that Chris Masterjohn, um, a biochemist from Brooklyn, uh, New York, actually looked at research. There's research uh, from Japanese uh, studies and also Eastern European studies, completely different um, arm of study, more, much more chemically based on this strange group of um, uh, chemical group called philoquinones mm -hmm. and menaquinones, and that's vitamin K um, nutrients, and they're actually very different. And yeah. so K1 is a philoquinone. That's one that we know, and we give K1 shots to babies to stop there, yeah. which doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, but the, what Price was showing is that, hang on, there's different types of vitamin K, and the K2 is really important. That's the, the one he was missing. Activated X turned out to be vitamin K2, and there's different types of vitamin K2, and so what he was finding was that nutrients, uh, diets rich in A, D, and K2 worked. And the reason is that vitamin K2 is a, an activator of proteins that carry calcium. Mm. So vitamin A turns up all the building aspects, so it gets the body ready to, and also growth aspects as well. These nutrients do everything. Yeah. Vitamin D absorbs calcium, turns on all the yeah. genes to grow, to place Get, well, sorry, not place, but gets everything ready, you know, all the stem cells mm -hmm. out, the hormonal mm -hmm. um, DNA, everything that vitamin D does. It's, you know, all that it's research. It's, it, it really yeah. is incredible. It is unbelievable. Um, but K2 activates the proteins that physically carry calcium. And that is, you know, without K2, you know, you've got these, these carriers that you can't activate. And there was research in, it was 2011, I think, that showed that osteoporotic women who take vitamin D supplements with calcium don't increase their bone density, mm -hmm. but actually increase their risk of cardiovascular events. Deposits. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. And it's because the, the body isn't managing calcium. And this is exactly the problem Price was talking about, but we misunderstood it. It's because if you have D and calcium, you're going to be calcifying your body up and where do we see this first? In dental calculus. Like there's no explanation for why dental calculus builds up as opposed to dental plaque. It's because the body isn't just putting that calcium into the bones and teeth. And so the K2 does that. It is um, matrix GLA protein and osteocalcin. They're the two proteins. Mm -hmm. They're vitamin K2 dependent. And this is a menaquinone, not a philoquinone, which is K1, which mm -hmm. you get from your green leafy vegetables. Metaquinones come from animal products. They're converted via animal physiology, physiological processes. And if you don't get those, it seems that every human diet, this is what Price looked at. And you look at any human diet, they always you know, ate foods rich in these fat-soluble vitamins. We know we're deficient in vitamin D. 100%. Like, yeah, we're completely. And we know all the things that, that, that happen because of that now, right down to our DNA, then and we've basically played out what Price said not to do, and we're paying for it. You know, we I see this today. Kids craniofacially aren't developing. You know, they have sleep disorders as young as three. Kids mm -hmm. snoring. Mm -hmm. This is all a craniofacial problem because the, the jaw isn't growing. They don't have the volume in the airway to breathe. They functionally get an issue, and we can prevent this now with functional dentistry. But the core problem ends up being with generational eating the modern diet deficient in fat soluble vitamins. Yeah, wow, wow, that's that is that kind of blew my mind away, man. That that was some good stuff. And what about the importance of okay, so vitamin D, right? These cultures, 
I can guarantee, especially that long ago, we're out in the sun more too, right? Is this part of your recommendations with your patient saying, yeah, get out in the sun too, get your vitamin D in that form? What I'm trying to get at is food, supplemental vitamin D, do you think it equates to what the power of, you know, being out in the sun? I don't think you could. I think there are many more things. When you look at the conversion of vitamin D from the skin to the um, active vitamin D in the body, I think there are many other benefits of sunlight than we attribute to just vitamin D. So I think sunlight is a big factor. I think people that are vitamin, what, what you kind of see in the clinic is people that are vitamin D deficient, uh, it takes, sometimes they don't convert. And yeah. so rem remembering when, when to get the correct um, sunlight, you have to be in UVB rays. So that's middle of the day sun, 11 till 2, exactly. When in Australia, we're told not to do that because we've got such high rates of sun, sun cancer. Yeah. Um, but so there is a conversion process for that vitamin D to become active and stored in the liver. Mm -hmm. Many people today, if you have gut issues, you have liver issues, you have any kind of kidney issues, then I think people will struggle to convert that actively, even if they're in full... Um, full body sun. However, I think they certainly, certainly need to start getting more sunlight because yeah. it's a sign that you're out of that. So I think dietary and sometimes supplement uh, sources of vitamin D can help get the body back in tune. But we were, I think we're so deficient in this. Yeah. It's a, we're a long way from, you know, just one solution. You mentioned a few things, right? Uh, the, the breathing, the accommodation of teeth, what else? TMJ maybe? What, what, what uh, other things are we saying? A good example of it is in people that don't sleep right. And so breathing is the basis of good sleep. And so to go through the normal five stages of sleep, you have to be breathing right. So the autonomic nervous system needs you to be breathing deeply through the nose. And so one thing in the dental diet, I really talk about like try to get through the teeth teach you the most important things that your body needs. Because if your body isn't placing calcium and if it's not managing its hard structures, this, you know, the most important things a biological creature um, needs to maintain, then it's in you know, severe deficiency. And so what it also teaches us is that oxygen is the number one nutrient. And so when you don't breathe correctly, you don't breathe correctly uh, when you sleep. And your brain is often in basically panic mode for your entire rest cycle. And this is instead of going through all the deep layers of sleep into dream and REM. So non-REM sleep you know, takes us through the deep restorative. Then you mm -hmm. go into REM sleep where the brain's more active, yeah. dreaming and so forth five, five times a night. If you don't breathe correctly, you don't go through those levels. And we see this in the clinic all the time. And so how that manifests is a broad range of chronic issues where people aren't sleeping right and they don't even know it. And so if you go to and get a sleep test, you'll either be diagnosed for obstructive sleep apnea or, or you're okay. But there's a very broad spectrum of sleep issues that are related to breathing, related to the jaw, related to the connection of, between the tongue and the palate, which is very, very important because the autonomic nerves, the parasympathetic autonomic nervous system, system depends on the connection the physical connection of the tongue to the palate and so and we're even talking to the back of the throat where you activate the vagus nerve to activate the dig digestive, digestive system, system. Yeah, yeah. so you see digestive issues you see cold hands and feet Reynolds syndrome you see anxiety depression uh, poor you know general brain fog and so these are in people that wouldn't 
be diagnosed for a sleep disorder, but have a condition, what we call upper airway resistance syndrome. And so that's a category. It was defined in Stanford in 92, and it's a category of sleep disorder that functional dentistry is beginning to treat. And it's an issue of at the core of it is craniofacial growth. And then it becomes breathing dysfunction. It becomes oral dysfunction, which then becomes all this autonomic issue. And then the whole thing basically plays out and everyone's different. You know, I see a lot of people with chronic gut issues. And if you don't breathe correctly and you're, you don't sleep correctly, your body never has the chance. You know, one of those sleep cycles, the brain has to basically clear the digestive system out. Yeah. You don't get that. If, you yeah. don't, if you're not giving your brain your one job when you sleep, right, to, to breathe correctly, that's it. So we think about oxygen as being the core delivery mode of, of breathing. But there are, there's nitric oxide, which is released in the paranasal sinuses. So if you don't breathe through your nose deeply, um, in the correct patterns, then you don't release nitric oxide into the body, which is a pa- yeah. Yeah, powerful vasodilator and it does many other cellular things as well. And so even breathing incorrectly or in the wrong thing, you don't get nitric oxide. You also need tolerance to carbon dioxide because the when you transfer oxygen in the cells, the carbon dioxide has to rise first and then the cells dump all the oxygen. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. So that means you have to have tolerance to deep breathing. You hold the breath, carbon dioxide, dioxide rises yep. and then the oxygen comes out and otherwise it doesn't happen. So all of these things are very kind of like, you're not going to notice it, but then all of a sudden you get this chronic gut issue or you get you know chronic fatigue or just general brain fog or you know and usually like you can see the symptoms in the mouth and then you can you can have this long spanning um, story of how you know craniofacial growth has affected people yeah i think it's so incredible because you're right you can give uh, a patient the best supplement protocol um, dietary shifts feed in the gut and they may not get better for many reasons one thing, even in the naturopathic side, functional side, that we don't talk about is correct breathing during sleep. One thing that I think about now is that, all right, this is awesome for children who are still developing. What about adults who, whose facial, their, 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 their jaw bones, they're solidified? What now then? What if, what if, for example, you have an adult that comes in and says, I'm not breathing. What do we, how do we help them? Yeah, so in children, the opportunity is that we can prevent braces, which is important. Prevent any children who snores, any children who are acting out kind of ADHD kind of, um, you know, instead of going to medications, we should be looking at their sleep and brain development. Um, mouth breathing, you notice mouth breathing kids, you should always jump on that. And then in adults, it seems to be once we really reach adolescence, kids have these very you know, similar set of um, symptoms where the kind of long face bags under the eyes, you know, just tired all the time or acting out. They're tired or acting out, one of them. Can't concentrate, um, you know, not thriving. But then they usually reach adolescence and they kind of, you know, go into adulthood. And then so there's a different set of people. So there's either you got your, your male who's like kind of, you know, 40, overweight, you know, walking heart attack, and they snore like a train, right? And they've got obstructive sleep, but they're on a CPAP machine. Mm-hmm. In the mouth, they'll usually have, you know, severe gum disease and, and you know, risk of type 2 diabetes, all their type 2 diabetic um, currently and on medications. And these people, you know, obviously diet and, um, you know, supplements are going to help a lot. But if you don't get their breathing right, so what happens with sleep apnea and people who are on a CPAP machine or um, who are on the, have been diagnosed for obstructive sleep apnea is that their brainstem has degenerated to a point where they can't manage their heart rate, 
uh, their breathing patterns when they sleep, and they, they've got a road to getting out of it. And so breathing is a very important mode for that. There may be craniofacial issues that can help, so you can still do adult palatal expansion now. Mm-hmm. And we were never taught that in dental school that you can actually change the palate. Yeah, yeah, it's very new. And so there's, there are a number of systems out there where people can alter. It takes a long time. It's, it's annoying. Um, you have to wear a, um, a guard every night for at least 12 months. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can expand the palate in an adult. And you can also teach myofunctionally the tongue to sit to the roof of the mouth. It's really, really important. Some, some adults are walking around with tongue ties. That's a very, very common problem where the tongue is actually pinned to the floor of the mouth. Yeah. And they either need to learn to lift that tongue or they can get releases. There's a guy in LA here doing adult and teaching adult releases ENT. Um, some people have profound experiences and sometimes the the symptoms are kind of craniofacial pain, head and neck. So you look at a posture and w- one big thing in the history you'll find a lot is people that have had teeth extracted and braces. So, you know, people should always be screening that in their patients. But also if you've had that, there is a common, these people seem to suffer these symptoms worse um, and you have digestive issues, sleep issues, because that that mode of contracting the growth of the jaw in that period holds them in a position my sister had it and she's you know suffered all her life and she's still only working through that Mm -hmm. um and they really do suffer these symptoms but once you kind of realize that realize that you need to get the tongue out of the throat lifting to the roof of the mouth getting that relationship breathing deeply a lot of people just can't breathe they just can't and that makes them anxious that's true and one test is you know, if you, um, one thing that the trend is kind of going around is mouth taping now. Um, That's, that was one of my questions I wrote for you. Yeah. Yeah. And like, so one test is that if you should try, you know, you can try mouth taping, you know, obviously, you know, proceed with caution, you know, mm-hmm. um, what, what will usually happen though, I did this with myself as well, is that, you know, you try mouth taping and then, so if you can breathe the whole night through your nose, you're delivering nitric oxide, um, then, you know, you know you're breathing correctly. Or, or there's usually some tweaks you can do. If, if it comes off, it means you're subconsciously taking it off. This happened to me. It took me a long time to be able to do it. Um, then you're breathing incorrect and you need to retrain that breathing to deliver nitric oxide and oxygen to your every cell in your body right throughout the right, right throughout the night. And think about that every eight hours. It's, and if you sleep with closed mouth, you know, tongue in the right position, you wake up like you've had eight coffees. Man, I know. I've had mornings like that. And more so than not, it's not like that. Um, so so how? let's say you do wake up in the middle of the night ripping off the tape and you go, oh my God, I feel like I'm suffocating. Do you do it the next night or how do you how do you train, retrain it? So nighttime breathing is just a mirror of daytime breathing. So your habits and so what you've got to and this is all like practicing yoga and meditation, they teach you to deep breathe in uh, deeply into the diaphragm. Um, and so what it basically is, you know, there's lots of different breathing techniques and this is where you know breathing is incredibly important and powerful too. Um, so basically you can try if you start to do breathing techniques you can do you need to increase your tolerance to carbon dioxide and so that is holding breath longer exhaling for longer because it activates the parasympathetic nervous system and so one one way to do it is to exercise before you go to bed in terms of breathing exercises Mm -hmm. so deep breathing so put the tape on for about 30 minutes before practice 
the deep breathing for a good 20 minutes. So you're in the breathing cycle before you go to sleep and then try the taping. If it stays on then, it means your brain's like, I'm okay with this, right? If it doesn't still, it means you need to go further. You might need to do breath work, you know, things like yoga. A functional dental exam can help because if you've got a high arched palate, so if you look in the, if you look in the mirror, open your mouth and mm-hmm. kind of look at your palate, mm-hmm. if you've got a narrow high palate, then basically your, the, this is something I was never taught in dental school either, is that the maxilla bone, which is the roof of the mouth, holds the teeth. It's also the floor of the nasal sinuses. Mm-hmm. So a high arch um, uh, roof of the mouth is also a constricted nasal sinus. And so you've got less volume. And so often people need to learn to use that and feel okay. Remember, there's pressure sensors in your airways. So whenever the body feels, brain feels pressure, it's like, I'm choking. Panic. And it's fight or flight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you've got to get yourself out. And often it's a matter of feeling okay with that pressure, letting the carbon dioxide build. Your brain stem is monitoring the carbon dioxide. It's got to be okay with it. Shallow chest breathing. And so one thing is so laying on the ground with your stomach on, uh, sorry, your hands over your stomach and letting, filling up the balloon under your, under your hands, right, right under your navel or your belly button. Mm. And so you do that with, say, about a five to six second um, inhale and then about an eight to 10 second exhale. If you can do that breathing technique, that slow, slower exhale into the diaphragm, feel calm with it. And then start to build that. You can do things like alternative nostril breathing, which is good because it helps you deal with a lower flow. So you're not doing this fast turnover, low, you know, you're not not getting any oxygen or nitric oxide, carbon dioxide buildup when you're doing chest, narrow chest breaths. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's, I so feel that I've been listening to more and more podcasts about people bringing up breathing, correct breathing. And when you become aware and conscious of, where your breathing is at, you're blown away. Cause I'm, I'll, I'll think about it, and I'm like, I wasn't breathing for ten seconds just there. More so than not, um, at least me personally, that's been my work, right? To breathe correctly. It's so weird that I'm even talking about that. It's so intuitive. We should all be breathing correctly. Are you seeing then patients who are retraining this, themselves, sleeping correctly, getting deeper sleep, start improving even for systemic issues like you like you mentioned, maybe high blood pressure or diabetes, is there potential for that to start happening? Absolutely. And so what we often see is that people that have been trying to, you know, correct these kind of conditions, they'll get stuck. And so if you're not sleeping right, you know, your body just has, you know, nearly zero chance of of overcoming a chronic disease. So, and the big one is chronic digestive issues. And because nearly every chronic disease has some kind of digestive issue at, at its core, whether you notice it or not. And so... Correcting digestive issues needs these kind of um, balance in sleep. And so the three things, three principles I find which are most important um, that I ask every patient in a functional dental exam is, you know, the nutrients. So the fat-soluble vitamins, things like, you know, all the things um, that a good naturopath or, um, you know, functional doctor will look at. Uh, But vitamin D is very important, vitamin K2, vitamin A, magnesium, zinc, um, you know, a number of other people might be, you know, whether you go into the Bs and... Yeah. You know, all those kind of things. But so there's nutrients, there's sleep. And so we have to figure out if they're sleeping, breathing right. So once you get the nutrients and sleep right, then you've got the gut, which is the whole immune system. And this usually comes alongside with, you know, gum disease. So gum disease is just chronic inflammation, um, intestinal permeability, which begins in the mouth. And then so once, and then you look at the gut and as a part of the 
uh, a system with the oral microbiome and the gut microbiome working together. And that's why we have intestinal permeability because both of them are. And once you heal those three things, the nutrients, the breathing and the gut, that's at the root. There's not many other conditions that are going to be outside the chronic conditions. And then some people will need more work, right? Some, then, then you do your extra, your closer nutrient work and then people start getting better. I'm such a proponent of that. What is the simplest rudimentary back to nature interventions we can make first? So first, so diets rich in fat soluble vitamins, they're really important. And because we just don't, unless you think about it, I guarantee you're eating a a diet devoid in fat soluble vitamins. Every and all of our ancestors uh, used to do that. Um, you know, wh- whichever form suits you, um, you know, people that eat more plant-based diets probably have to supplement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just pure biochemistry, you know, because mm-hmm. all of the fat-soluble vitamins, so uh, vitamin A, for instance, uh, for beta carotene from a carrot, that gets converted to retinol. Uh, retinol in the human body, we don't do um, so well in terms of converting that. It's probably only 10 or 20%. Um, K1 to K2 is the same. So green leafy vegetables, your liver will convert some of that K1, very, very little. Some people are genetically um, not as good at converters. And so getting the, the activated uh, versions are important. You can get the menaquinone 7, which is bacterial, um, bacterially derived. Uh, and But what happens with K2 is that Philoquinones and uh, menaquinone 7, which is the ferment version of um, K2, both convert in the liver to menaquinone 4. So menaquinone 4 is the smallest of the K2s, and it seems to be the most bioactive. In the blood cholesterols, it's picked off first, so it's, it's actually stored on the outside of the, of the lipoproteins or blood cholesterols, and the body takes it first. And then it takes the K1 and the MK7 to the liver to be converted to MK4. So it seems like we need this MK4. You can get it in supplement version, but it's synthetic. Um, and vitamin D as well too. So you know, uh, D2 from plants can interfere with um, D3 conversion. But yeah, it's the same thing. Um, you can get it from the sun. So lots of sun. Yeah. Um, yeah but diets rich in fat-soluble vitamins. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> these things are fundamental to our physiology. Um, breathing, sleep. Uh, one, one big thing is to start being conscious of the connection between your tongue and palate. So in your palate, if, if anyone's in yoga or meditation or any of these kind of practices, they teach you to lift the tongue to the palate. Mm-hmm. And you can actually do, there's a few exercises. So if you run your finger um, a, across the top of your mouth, right to the back where you start to feel the soft yeah. part of your mouth, the soft palate. Mm-hmm. So that soft part is where the vagus nerve innovates. There's many parasympathetic... And your whole palate is innovated by many, many um, cranial parasympathetic nerves. And so when you press it mm-hmm. and, and when, you, when you feel that connection, it sends physical you know, vibrations or pressure signals to autonomic, the brain to settle down. Because everyone, you know, there's very few people that are not in um, you know, sympathetic drive today. We're stressed out. Yeah. So the simplest way to do that is to press the tongue to the palate. But you've got to do it right to the back. Soft palate. Soft palate, yeah. yeah. And so the back of your tongue. So if you think of the back of your tongue must engage that soft palate. It's a very difficult thing to do. The, the tongue is, is, sits in the middle of the mandible. It strings out like to the, to the mandible, strings to the hide bone, mm-hmm. to the base of the skull. So it's kind of hanging there. So the tongue, when it's up to the roof of the mouth, it opens the airway like that. And you'll stand straight. Your shoulders are back. Like you should never be. And then all of a sudden you're breathing. You're delivering air straight down the nasal sinuses to where it should go. 
And so that's... I feel it. Mm -hmm. mm, yeah. Interesting. And, and, but it's, a, it's really hard, right? So... Um, that's a good practice. It really is. And it's based in yogic practices, right? And, but you can do it every day. Like every second you have, you should be pressing that tongue up. And it's, if you feel strained there, it's good. You're doing the right thing. You need to, it's like going to the gym. You need to train those muscles to be strong. Something called myofunctional therapy, which is a growing arm of, you know, uh, basically alternative therapy alongside dentistry is growing, which teaches people to do this breathing tongue to the roof of the palate. Um, those things help settle your brain. If you don't sleep well, you should be doing that, you know, right before bed, you know, like a meditative practice. Yeah. Um, and these things can change your, you know, feeling almost instantly. So you're saying you could change the structure of the face as you practice these, these exercises. Why? Because you're building the muscle. Are you shifting anything within the, the, the way the bones sit? So many people who suffer from TMJ, TMD, yeah. um, headaches, pain, a lot. You, you look at the way they stand and they're often, um, look at their shoulders, their sh shoulders always forward, their heads always forward. Now that's a result. So bones only move to breathe, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a long-term posture of their, their body trying to breathe. And it's just like breathing uh, through the mouth, right? Yeah. So they're just like, and so the bones only move to breathe and the muscles move to, your body moves to breathe first. And so your posture is based around how you breathe. And so once you reposition them, and it's not easy because you, if you've done it all your life, you're kind of like, but the, it is doable, you know, in, you know, a few weeks time, you'll start to be conscious of, oh, my shoulders should be back. My, mm -hmm. my head should be straight over my shoulder. Yeah, and yeah. if you look at yourself side on, there's a few exercises you can do, like pressing the back of the, the neck should be almost straight against the wall. Mm -hmm. and, and you can like the chin lifting straight to the top and you'll feel all these muscles stretch here. And then when you do a proper swallow, um, a swallow should like be a, like a wave against the palate right back to the soft palate. The whole thing should be engaged. Yeah, and they I should, just did it. <laughs> yeah, right? And you Very feel nice. it kind of go and it really yeah. goes up, right? Some people have high palates and that's where adult myofunctional orthodontics will help to expand them out. And when they start to get that that connection between the tongue and palate, things begin to change. And, you know, from there, like once you get that breathing right, the posture right, then you can start, then you should start working on gut things. Because I think a lot of people just jump into the gut and go, oh, you know, but the, trying to fix the gut when your autonomic nervous system and breathing is wrong is, I just see a lot of people going, you know, I've tried everything and it's not working. Yeah. And the, the body knows what to do, man. We just, we just have to give it the correct substrates in the form of oxygen or nitric oxide, as you mentioned, whatever intelligence is there, it will handle it so long as we're giving it. Say, because you just said a lot of great things on posture and swallowing and where the tongue sits. How does one find out more about this? How does one research more? Is it in your book or is there a database or different practitioners that can teach people this? In my book, The Dental Diet, we really go through the baseline, so the, the breathing, the, the nutrients and understanding the, the physiology of you know how the mouth connects to the body. And so understanding that baseline, I think, is really important for people. But then for people that have, if you have children, for, so parents with kids, so if you're noticing these things in kids, you have an opportunity to prevent them. So any kid that's showing signs of sleep issues, snoring, mouth breathing, um, not sleeping well, not performing well at school, should be considered that they're not breathing correctly. And you can get a functional dental exam. So an airway-focused uh, dentist, orthodontist, that will... Um, that will assess how their craniofacial development is affecting their breathing. Sometimes kids with tongue ties, for instance, um, 
you know, they, they don't, their tongue's falling back in the throat. Teeth grinding's a big one for that. Yeah. So anyone with teeth grinding, it's usually an airway issue where the brain's pulling the jaw forward to open up the airway. If you don't get to the breathing, it just usually continues. And just putting a splint on will stop the teeth on teeth contact, but it won't address the root cause, yeah. right? And so there are ways to do that. But the what I look at when I see um, teeth grinding patients is that, um, you know, we want to see why they aren't breathing right. Mm-hmm. And it's usually a palatal issue. It's usually a tongue issue. Or there's a mucus issue or there's a blockage. In, you know, you can see an ENT, for instance. There's a lot – there's – Simple but effective ways to look at the craniofacial structure in order to address it. Okay. And how about someone who's sleeping with a retainer every night? Is that causing malfunction and breathing? Is well, that relevant? It here? would depend on the... Everyone's yeah. different, right? I see people that have kind of lived with it. And, you know, if you have issues, I would look into it further. And yeah. so remember with orthodontics... So orthodontics is great at dragging teeth into line. So that's what it does. Like it, it aligns the teeth. What it doesn't do is address why the teeth were crooked in the first place. Yeah. And so what we find when you, when, you change those, when you change those factors in kids, teeth will straighten naturally. And so in adults, sometimes I see a lot of people that have previously had orthodontics with jaw pain, headaches, migraines, neck pain. If you've got any of those issues, holding those teeth in that place might not be right for you. And there might be an underlying breathing issue that you've got to release in order to, you know, get those tensions out of the, out of the, the head and neck. And so there's, it's a complex problem once you've had that, but if you've got other issues, you know, maybe getting out of the retainer and correcting your oral function. So that if you think about how the, the, the pressure the tongue can place on the teeth, mm-hmm. so the biggest influence on your teeth moving are the tongue and the lips. And so if you just breathe through the nose and place the tongue to the roof of the mouth, you don't need a retainer because the, the body is going to manage it. So teeth it's a natural move, retainer, right? Yeah. Often teeth move because of a tongue thrust right. function. You can see that in, you know, mm-hmm. anyone with any kind of open bite or, or um, lower, lower teeth often get everyone with lower crooked teeth. It's a tongue issue because their tongue's low and hitting those teeth all the time. Oh, okay. Yeah, and you'll often see one tooth kind of push forward. And then if you open the cheeks, bite yeah. together without the cheeks and swallow, yeah. you'll see the tongue shoot forward. That's mm, a tongue thrust swallow, yeah. And yeah. so the tongue should go up and only up. And then so once you get rid of that, the teeth aren't going to move anyway. So do you need the retainer? So correcting all that functionally probably is a better answer. Man, I love functional dentistry now, man. This is like naturopathic philosophies, functional philosophies. It's, it's awesome stuff. You mentioned something you're, and it was really interesting about now you're delving into consciousness. What And, and everything you said was incredible. I know the listeners are going to love this. I'm taking this into my own thing here. But what is your work now in consciousness? Kind of after writing the dental diet and, you know, looking at the body, like I feel like I understand, you know, health quite well. And But the way I kind of went about it was I, I can I look at a lot of different scientific literature and what is kind of, everything is pushing towards is understanding the human mind. And, you know, the human mind is something we vastly don't understand yet. And so... The other, the other kind of path into this was looking at ancestral cultures. And so ancestral cultures looked deeply into the idea of consciousness and that, that the human mind is beyond the brain. And you know, neuroscience hasn't basically established, you know, the consciousness comes from the brain. We, and we've more or less r- ruled it out. There are a few different theories kind of going there. But what we're finding is, you know, we've got this scientific conversation that is coming together to show that what we experience as consciousness is actually, you know, far beyond just the physical 
you know, realm. And so this is kind of, it's happening in lots of different scientific fields as well, both the physiology. So one road, understanding the brain, so the pineal gland. And so you look at the physiology of the pineal gland, it's the highest endocrine organ. And, you know, it was never taught to me like that in dental medical school. Um, and it still isn't. Yet we have melatonin, for instance, which, so I started looking into melatonin. Melatonin does everything in the body. Mm -hmm. And when you have dysfunction in melatonin, you have you know, dysfunction in everything. And so the pineal gland is the primary releaser of melatonin in the body. And we know what, what melatonin does. And what we have with, with the pineal gland is it's a deep connection to the diurnal rhythms of, of the earth, of, of the sun hitting our um, retina. Mm -hmm. So, and this is something that kind of hit me after writing the book is that, you know, the most important, you know, we are just energy, right? So when you look at, you know, what we're made up, we're made up of atoms, but when you look deeper at those atoms, those atoms are quanta. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and these things don't exist in a, you know, this table is basically see-through on an atomic level, but then you go deeper, it's just energy. So we are energetic, um, you know, beings, matter, whatever you want to call it. But then you look at the inputs that you put in and the most important input of energy you can get is from the sun. Um, when you look at how the sun communicates through the eyes to start the vitamin A cycle, um, what, what, so once light hits the, the retina, it starts, it yokes the vitamin A cycle. Yep. And then the other input is vitamin D. So the two inputs of light is vitamin A and vitamin D, which come from the sun. And then you've got obviously K2, but then the connection to then melatonin. So the, the pineal gland then switches to serotonin once, once it detects light. And then it starts to switch to melatonin once it gets dark. And we've lost that. And there are other connections there too from the palate to, um, to the physical connection and the idea of sound and humming. So sound and humming releases nitric oxide from the, from the paranasal sinuses. Uh, but it also, you know, there seems to be a, a connection to activation of the pineal gland. And there is, you know, eye cells in the pineal gland that seem to give people access to, you know, these other, these experiences, um, other realms of reality that we're only beginning to understand. And there's, there is a scientific, you know, conversation happening here. And so for me, I'm looking into the ancestral cultures that seem to know a lot about this. You know, you look at the Mayans, the Egyptians, that every every culture, the shamanic cultures, yeah, yeah. They, and they they talk about you know what we call you know what would be you know antiquated um, things. It, the indigenous Australians are amazing, you know, in what they knew. But then, so they've got great astronomical knowledge, like astronomical knowledge beyond anything that we've you know really only just starting to begin to understand, and. To me, I have to ask, you know, where where'd all this information come from? And so that's something I'm looking into. I'm working with something called the Human Origin Project, where we look into all this scientific confluence of all this information, including human consciousness, because yeah. that's a part of it. To know where we came from, we need to know what consciousness is. And I don't think we're quite there, but I think we're starting to get to the place now scientifically where we can have a broad, you know, spanning conversation about, you know, where does this consciousness come from and what, you know, yeah. where does it lead us? Thinking back on ancient cultures, they, I believe that a lot of them had access to these psychedelics in the form of maybe ayahuasca or whatever it is in their locations, in their geographical locations. And having that veal fall and seeing reality for what it is. And it's pretty incredible because you look at old 
hieroglyphics in different parts of the world, and they're all very similar, and they all have very similar messages, and there's always something that is alluding towards the same archetype uh, pictures and, and understandings of what consciousness is. It's pretty incredible how little we know or forgot about who we are. There's all this evidence that you know nearly every culture in some way or form um, did use DMT. And there we know that, well, you know, we're not quite there with the studies exactly what where DMT comes from in terms of the melatonin mm-hmm. conversion. But there we, we know that it's it that it's stored there in, in the pineal gland. We just haven't admitted that it's exactly mm-hmm. produced. It's produced elsewhere in the mm-hmm. body though. Um, we know it's produced widespread in nature and we know that it activates those um, you know, eye-like cells in the pineal gland and there seemed to be a purpose. And, and, you know, if you look at all the great innovators in the world, all the people that came up with breakthrough um, ideas that really changed our world, they nearly all, you know, discussed or spoke about accessing some form of higher consciousness. Yeah. And, you know, ancient cultures talk about, you know, the, the primordial brain, the autonomic system, the very survival. Then you talk about the high, the mammalian you know, cortex, which is kind of mm-hmm. like your every days. Mm-hmm. But then they talk about that there's a higher mind. And I think this is where we're going is that, you know, maybe we do have abilities to enter higher consciousness and maybe we can access a field of information there, which is consciousness and physics is really kind of struggling with this problem now because we haven't unified quantum physics with, you know, the relative relativistic world. And, you know, it doesn't look like we're going to. And so really we might, it, it, when you take the existence, for instance, and you take matter as being the bottom, you put consciousness at, at the bottom of the triangle and matter being a result of energy, which we know it is. Yeah. We know yeah. matter is just energy, right? Yeah. That changes everything. And it, it means that I think we have a, quite a swift problem to solve here in terms of, you know, we need to understand what it is about this consciousness that we all have, you know, humans seem to have this ability to access. And, you know, can we access this in our everyday life and can it make us better? Can it, you know, what can it do? That's- yeah, yeah. I always, it, what blows me away is what's the delinea- delineation between billiard ball, physics, mechanics, and then where does all of a sudden consciousness come in or that quantum world, right? Or is it, is the illusion this material world and we're just living in a quantum world and experiencing and being tightly intimately connected to our reality we're experiencing. It's amazing. And we see that in meditation, man. Like, like I myself have gotten inspiration that in my waking life is not part of my thought processes, but in, but I know that I'm accessing some sort of inspiration, information that is giving me answers to things that logistically don't make sense, but do make sense when you apply it. Oh, it's, it's beautiful and mind blowing at the same time. Yeah. Right? And like, that's proven, you know, like quantum entanglement is a scientifically proven fact. And so, you know, when you say that people kind of go, oh, you know, that seems, good. but that's, that's an actual fact. Yeah. And when you look into kind of the idea of, you know, Freud and the subconscious, you know, we know that there is, you know, another kind of mind there. And like, it, like that's scientific as well. It's we just haven't exactly understood or know how to access that mind. And dreams a great example. You know that um, there's a lot of scientific going on between like lucid dreaming now, where you you know that you're dreaming and you can kind of intervene in things. And so people can, um, for instance, you can reverse things like PTSD uh, by consciously saying, "I'm going to enter this dream state," and 
and intervening it in some way. Um, dreaming itself, you know, a lot of people's, you know, some of the, the, I can't remember his name, but the man who invented the periodic table actually dreamt it. And he wrote, that's how we got it. Yeah. And so where is this coming from? It's like, and yeah. this is a subconscious. And this is this idea that consciousness is, you know, we're saying it's veiled. And so maybe what we're dealing with isn't the true, you know, reality. No, no I don't believe so. It's a big question, right? Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't believe so. I, I just believe that we're in this world for an experience and uh, it's not our steady state. You know, we, and when we die, we will experience that steady state again. And many people may not believe, but... Um, it's just, that's what I got in meditation and that's my reality. So I'm hoping that nowadays there's just a wave of consciousness happening where it's changing these frequencies, right? And it's, it's, people are awakening more. And I, I love that you're doing that work from the scientific aspect, right? Because there's going to be a lot of scientific minds that are going to be like, what are you talking about with this consciousness, uh, hippie stuff? But um, adding legitimacy is going to be go, go a long way as far as the way we disseminate this information to patients and public. Even just from, from a healing perspective, you know, when yeah. you see yourself in that light, you know, when, you know, that you are light, that you are energy, when you zoom into those atoms, you zoom into those, um, you know, the protons, electrons and so forth, and it is just energy, it is, you know, it's a different way of looking at yourself. And I think accessing, one thing about the human mind, it seems that once you understand things properly, it helps you to move through things. And I think that's a big part. One thing I always work with patients is I make sure they understand every bit. You don't just give them a pill and, you know, that they have to understand what's wrong and they have to go through the process to fix it. And then and then that helps the body move through. We know the, you know, the placebo effect, uh, the uh, influence that the mind has on the body, and it really can release you from, you know, chronic health issues because, you know, people have, you know, quite profound abilities out there. And yeah. if you're struggling with a chronic health issue, you know, that's going to be your primary um, worry. And, you know, you need to release that so you can find that in yourself. Yeah. Beautiful stuff, man. Um, all right. So to, to wrap it up, let's say for someone's, what is your number one approach for someone's health long-term, both, let's do it like this, physical and then conscious, mental, emotional. So two, let's say, what would you just, if you had to say one thing and then leave this earth, what would you say? In terms of um, physical, I'd say the, the most important thing you can do is uh, help your body's relationship with vitamin D. I think we are so vitamin D deficient today and the impacts of that is um, you know, beyond what we can really comprehend. And so whether it be like the things we discussed, there are three ways you can get vitamin D. One's by food, one's by supplements, one's by the sun. I think those three things can often help. And that relationship to the sun is important. You need to find that Daruna rhythm. And because the issue with all of this is that that connection with the sun, that vitamin D plays in that cycle with melatonin. So getting your vitamin D right, and you, you might have to do all three things, you're going to help get to the root cause of the problem or you're going to prevent issues later on. So vitamin D, I think, is the number one. And there are other things that go with it, obviously, with you know, yeah. fat-soluble vitamin. But vitamin D seems to be one of the central ones. And intervenable as well. It's so easy, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone can do it. Why don't mm -hmm. we have it as a, a public health measure yeah. that everyone is absolutely conscious of what their vitamin D levels are mm -hmm. and you know, intervene in them? It's, it's that simple. Mentally... I would put it in terms of, you know, in terms of a really, um, quite, you know, healthcare perspective in terms of breathing. Um, but 
to quietly sit and with your breath, and you know, this is kind of going to the realms of meditation, um, focusing on your breathing and what the breathing is doing and the parts of your body without thinking about you know, your day-to-days, without thinking, worrying about um, a health problem you have or a health problem of a family member, and just breathing, letting the breath go, letting you know, the, the bodily processes happen and allowing that to clear your mind and then see what happens. And, and you're not looking for anything. You're just letting come what comes. Breathing allows you to do that. This is what meditation you know, is all about. And so once you access it, like this, obviously breathing has its physical, purely physical benefits, but that space where your mind, that subconscious, whatever that is, gets to just clear all of its monkey madness it seems to be very beneficial and you know the research is showing how beneficial that is yeah breathing and vitamin d i think a lot of people would solve a lot of the problems today so easy too so easy right do it tomorrow morning absolutely i love that i love that i love that you thank you so much man you came here and you just kicked down the doors and just gave us all the information that's beautiful stuff i appreciate it that you came man oh thanks for having me i appreciate your work too it's really important you know people you know, suffer a lot of issues out there and, you know, getting to the root cause, it just helps, you know, it helps people really kind of change their lives. Yeah. So, so thank you. The dental diet. And then how else? Uh, your Instagram? What was it? Yeah. So my uh, website is drstevenlin, D-R-S-T-E-V-E-N-L-I-N.com. Um, Instagram at drstevenlin, um, Facebook, drstevenlin. So share a lot of functional um, health issues um, and, you know, how to approach things from a, a, a mouth-body connection um, and we're also, um, I'm working on you know the Human Origin Project. You can find them on Instagram too, which is kind of a look at ancestral perspectives and how this all comes together in a very kind of ancient yet modern perspective. Awesome stuff. Okay, thank you, man. 